Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up to that text, uh, Luke chapter 18. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, my name is Josh. If we have not met, I'd love to be able to meet you out in the lobby uh, after services. It'd be great to, to chat with you. Uh, I also want to extend and wish you a happy Father's Day as well. Um, I shared this in the first service, so I, I think it's good to share here too. Uh, on the social media realm, world, whatever you want to call it, on the social medias, uh, there uh, has been something that's kind of been going around uh, this Sunday that I think is a perfect gift for your husband or your father. Uh, they have just come out uh, with a video game that is a lawn mowing simulator. So uh, essentially the entire basis of the game uh, is to mow the lawn, and that's it. So uh, if you want to just bless that special father in your life, just give them this game, and they're going to appreciate it so much. They're going to miss mowing outside so much. They just want to do it inside as well. So uh, find that game online there. But uh, as you saw, we've been in this series um, on how to think like Jesus. And uh, for a while, we've been focusing on the mission of Jesus, things that he accomplished here on earth, all the different things in Luke um, in which Jesus is pressed towards Jerusalem, and he is looking to accomplish the mission of Jesus. And this series is more specifically on the teachings of Jesus. And one of the most popular ways that Jesus, is, Jesus teaches is through something called parables. And parables are short stories that typically have some sort of uh, attachment or meaning to the end that help uh, point us to think differently about either the world, the Bible, the Lord, each other. And, and they kind of place us into a different uh, posture, if you will, in order to understand things better. And so today, the parable that we're going to be looking at and the one that you just heard is uh, the parable of the unjust judge or the parable of the persistent widow. Uh, and it's structured in such a way, if you notice, that the beginning of it is given to you, the lesson of it all is given to you right out of the gate. Right in verse 1, Jesus says, pray persistently. And then in verses two through five, you receive the, uh, the, the actual parable itself. And he tells the story of the, the widow interacting with this judge and she's having all these problems and eventually the judge helps her. And then in verses six through seven, Jesus explains it. If you read the story, it's interesting because if you're reading intently enough, you'll notice verse one seems significantly different than verse eight. Like, if, if you just look down at it, at verse one, he says, now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray and always give up, and then he, uh, he basically ends it with, I tell you, he will swiftly grant her justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It seems like a weird jump, right? Like, persist faithfully. By the way, there is going to be judgment with the Son of Man coming. Will you be ready? It's very strange, it feels almost out of nowhere. And it's important for us to look back and when we see things like this in the text, when we don't really understand what's happening, it's important for us to look back and understand the broader context of what Jesus is talking about. For us to truly understand, to understand this parable, we need to understand the context and what's surrounding it. So if you have your Bibles, once again, just flip back or go on your phone to Luke chapter 17. Look at verse 20. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm just going to explain it and kind of give you a big, brief overview. Essentially, Jesus is gathered around. All these religious people want to talk to him, and they have this really great question for him. They want to know about the end of all time. So they ask Jesus when the kingdom of God is coming. 
Essentially, what they mean by this in our terms is that uh, they wanna know when the Messiah will come and overthrow the enemies of the kingdom and establish the throne of David and bring final peace and righteousness and justice to the world. This is essentially what we know as the end of all time or when Jesus will bring things into eternal peace. Look at how Jesus answers though. As he continues, he says, uh, if your only way of recognizing the kingdom is by miraculous signs that bring down the Roman tyranny, then you will surely miss it because the kingdom of God is already in the midst of you. Jesus is the king and wherever he wins people into his allegiance, his reign is established. So he kind of flips it on them and, and shares that, but then look down at verses 31 through 37. After he gets done sharing some very famous illustrations or stories about two instances in which humanity was at its lowest in sin and also there was a horrible judgment, he says he warns us not to be like Lot's wife who essentially escaped this city that was being destroyed but looked back and wanted to be able to go back to it and disobeyed the Lord. Um, essentially, in the hour of crisis, he tells us don't love the world. Don't turn back with longing or you'll be unfit for the kingdom. He says, remember when the son of man comes, he will separate people into two groups. He'll separate them into the sheep and the goats. Even if, he says this here, if you are sleeping together or working side by side at the mill, one will be taken to safety and the other one left. The disciples ask, left where? And then he answers very strangely, uh, where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. Essentially, not to be gathered to Christ at his coming is to be left for destruction. Jesus is making it clear in chapter 17 that eternal life hangs on whether or not we are ready when he arrives. So the question that the disciples and the Pharisees, people that are listening to him in this moment, the question they have and the question that we have is how can we be ready what does it mean for us to endure to the end? What does it look like for us to be faithful in the midst of this life? Naturally, people listening to him and us today would, would probably immediately go to readiness being uh, us renouncing egregious sins that are in our life being as sanctified as possible, being as pure as possible, that, that we need to not be like Sodom and Gomorrah, we need to not be like Noah's time, that we need to reject all the sexual immorality that was happening, the pride, everything that was bad, abuse, things that were occurring at the time. That's what we need to do to be ready to, for when Christ comes. And that is true. That's 100% true. But it's interesting, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus actually points out something different. He doesn't highlight the egregious sins. He highlights something else. He says that in the two catastrophes of Noah's day and the destruction of Sodom by fire and brimstone, uh, that time will be full of busy, ordinary life. Look at verse 27 in chapter 17. He says, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. And he says, so it will be on that day when the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, he says that we can expect that most of the world will be engaged in business as usual when the lightning of the Son of Man flashes from sky to sky. So it's not necessarily that we'll look around at the world and be like, oh, the Son of Man's coming back because it's just like Noah's day. He's saying, no, it's going to be just like average, ordinary life. Son of man's gonna come back when we're in line at Chick-fil-A. 
right? Son of Man's gonna come back when we get done with a Tuesday work day and it's just been really, really difficult and we're ready to just get home and relax for the evening. Son of Man's gonna come back when we're taking our kid to soccer practice, when we're celebrating the marriage of uh, one of our loved ones. That's when the Son of Man will come back. That's what Jesus is pointing out. Now, why would Jesus point this out? Because Jesus knows that the good things in life can make us just as insensitive to the reality of God as the gross things in life can. That there are times where uh, we need to make sure that we are not getting numbed to the things of the Lord because we are making ordinary, mundane things primary in our life. Sometimes we can get so tunnel vision focused on the things that are around us because they're making us so busy that we forget the big, massive things that God is going to do in our life and in our world. And Jesus is saying, don't grow numb. Understand, no, I am coming, and I am coming at a time that you will not suspect. Judgment will come when we don't know. And if we're not careful, we can make the temporary more important than the eternal. And that is where Jesus, and when Jesus, shares this parable. When he's in the midst of a warning of us not growing apathetic to the things of God. And so I think the main idea of this text, and we're gonna unpack it more, is that in order to think like Jesus, we need to live with the end in mind. In order to think like Jesus and not get caught up in the temporary, ordinary, normal things of life, we need to dwell on and think about the promises that are coming, the eternal life that we have, the inheritance that we are going to receive. Because if we do, it's gonna change a number of things. I think of it this way. Uh, my wife and I uh, kind of were, I don't know, victims of a scam is the right word. We willingly walked into uh, being scammed, if you will. Uh, there was this famous influencer, YouTuber, if you will, uh, that uh, essentially made these puzzles last year around December. And uh, the, the desire for the puzzles was that they, uh, he created these QR codes. Um, and he wanted to send them out in puzzle form for you to build, and then if you scan that QR code, uh, you would be able to win a prize. And so it sounded fun to me, right? Like, who doesn't wanna win a prize? That's easy enough. Uh, I'm not really thinking that, you know, how it's not gonna be very difficult. So I get the box, and uh, if you ever look at a QR code, okay, uh, that's not an easy puzzle. All right, like, and this is like a little bit of a commercial for your programs. Once again, if you just look, if you're wondering what a QR code is, uh, you can just look right down at your program that'll send you to our digital connect card. I'm not gonna do the whole commercial, but uh, that is not easy. In fact, it's like little bits and pieces of small, tiny, random squares that are two colors, okay? So we get this box of just puzzle pieces, and his desire, I guess, was put together the puzzle, and then you'll win a prize. So uh, we start in on it, and we begin to very, very quickly realize this is going to be hard. In fact, if you come to our house right now, we bought this in December, and if you go to our coffee table, there is a frame of a QR code and a very heavily dusty, unfinished uh, puzzle is on our Coffee table, okay? If you are good at puzzles, I would, I'll buy you dinner, okay? We need this thing off the coffee table. 
It is just terrible. So essentially, the scam, the scam is the fact that he, there's no way to know what we're building. Each QR code is unique. If he gave us a picture of the QR code, I'd just scan the QR code, hopefully win the prize. It's probably not a prize, but uh, hopefully win the prize, and then everything would be good. And if you have a picture, and everyone asks this whenever we're trying to figure out this puzzle, if you have a picture of the end product of a puzzle, it's typically easier for you to be able to do. And that's what we quickly learned and figured out. In the same way, when we have a picture of the end, where our life is headed, if we have an idea of where the Lord is taking us to, we can begin to position our lives, the puzzle pieces of life, to be able to construct them in such a way so that we know how to live in the here and now. When we forget that picture, and when we're only focused on the here, it's so much more difficult to figure out where we're going and what we're doing. So Jesus, in this parable, says, hey, look forward to the future, and it's gonna influence many different things about your life. And I think there are three particular things in this text that, that influence and change the way that we live today. It's gonna reframe our mind, and it's gonna change our actions. Two of them are more internal. One of them is an external application point. The first thing that, if we have the end in mind, the first thing that our life, our perspective changes is justice, justice. Look at this story. The story is all about justice. There are four times that the word justice is brought about. I think that if we understand that God is a just God who will fairly deal with evil in the end, then that changes how I view and enact justice today. There's, uh, this whole parable is literally all about an unjust judge. And people during that time, they would have understood, as soon as you begin to label off this judge, they would have understood immediately who this unjust judge is. It would have been uh, just a perfect picture in their mind. Typically, uh, a judge like this that is handling cases like this would have been a Gentile who was uh, hired by the Roman authorities or Herod. So immediately, everyone listening would have been like, oh, I know that judge. It'd be like as if Jesus came down, shared a parable with us, and was like, you know, like Judge Judy, and all of us are like, oh yeah, I know Judge Judy. Maybe you don't know Judge Judy, but I know Judge Judy. It'd be kind of the same type of thing. Just immediately they know that's a bad guy. That's a bad person. They can begin to kind of frame it in their mind. They see the actions and things that he does. And Jesus even points out here that he's literally the antithesis of who God is. He doesn't love people and he doesn't fear God. And who is the Lord? The Lord, and he, he commands us to uh, love other people and love the Lord. So he's literally the epitome of just unjustness, that he is solely self-interested, and he's not even doing his job. Like in this moment, he's not even focusing on uh, helping this woman. He's just doing whatever he wants to do, and the only way that he's going to help her is if she just pesters him over and over and over again. And essentially, Jesus then compares this judge to the Lord. And he contrasts him and says, will not God, where the unjust judge didn't, will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay in helping them? He says, no, I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that God is a God of justice. God, all throughout the Bible, 
uses his people to be able to accomplish justice in this world. He calls them to help the the widows and the orphans to work out their daily life to be able to see justice carried out within our world. And that he even points to one day where we will see justice finalized. That there will be a judgment day in which each person, person will account for the things that they did or did not do. And that all things will be ratified under his care. Now, as I bring up the word justice, uh, there is maybe a certain cultural connotation or definition that you're giving to that word uh, because it's kind of a buzzword in our culture right now, particularly the word social justice. It's kind of a very like heated debate within culture and church and all that, uh, especially things that have happened in this past year. A lot of people try to uh, interpret how to carry out justice in their own way. And there are are a lot of different perspectives on this because there's been a lot of philosophy that's kind of surrounded this for centuries upon centuries upon centuries where people have kind of began to to talk about, okay, we should carry out justice in this way to be able to support this system or this way to support this system. And then everyone kind of comes into it and approaches it and wants everybody to be able to go to their own viewpoint, right? Uh, And the Bible, it's interestingly enough, the Bible both supports and offends both ends of those two viewpoints. Uh, There's a really helpful article. I'm not gonna get into it, but if you wanna nerd out on it, um, I'm gonna point you to it. It's gonna be on the screen behind me. Um, It's called A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory by a guy named Tim Keller who writes, he's a very great writer. He's a pastor and author in New York. But essentially, he looks at this and he sees, like, what does the Bible say about justice and the philosophies that surround them? And he says there's a spectrum that on kind of the left end of the spectrum, there are people that are coming in with kind of this idea of the collective, that that we as a community need to all help one another out in our community, and therefore we need to all be passionate about social justice and helping other people, and our lives are all about that. And then over here on the right, there's people that are coming with philosophies of individualism. So essentially there's this belief that like I can do everything on my own and that justice is best carried out when freedom is given to the individual. And it's a spectrum. So you may find yourself on one end or the other. You may find yourself in the middle. All of us kind of come in with a different view. And it's interesting because on this end, the word social justice is kind of like, or justice itself, is kind of this like pillow. Like, I love this. This is such a good thing. And then over here, on this end, those that are more individualistic, that word social justice or justice is kind of like sandpaper. It's like, I I don't, I, I see it. I know that I'm supposed to do it. Like, maybe it's in God's word, but I just struggle with it. And most of the time, it's because of where our culture is at and the way that we try to reconcile with it today. And so here's the thing, once again, I believe that the Bible will offend and support both ends of the spectrum. We can't escape it. God calls us to justice. And so I I wanna take a minute really fast and just speak to both ends. To those of you that would find yourself that when you hear that word social justice and you like really struggle with that, like you see movements that are happening, you see things that are happening in our culture and you're like, I, I, I know God calls me to justice, but I'm gonna kind of do my own thing. My plea for you, and just what I would ask, is that you don't demean the call to justice that God has placed upon your life. 
a lot of times we feel like if I side with these movements, if I side with the things that are happening, or if I see what they're doing and I begin to act in that same way, I will be approving of all the different things that they have. And it's a big nuanced issue. But a lot of times we are more concerned in this individualistic kind of area, we are more concerned with our, uh, us potentially virtue signaling than actually carrying out virtue in our world. And there are times where the church has punted on their responsibility to stand up to racism, bigotry, violence, homelessness, all because we're like, I don't know where I'm at on this. God calls the church to be the hub of where people are able to come and they can feel as if it is a safe place for them to be able to see the justice of the kingdom carried out in the world. That there is a very real call for us to stand up for things that are happening in our culture and to fight for the oppressed, to fight for those that are beat down, to, to celebrate moments like yesterday with Juneteenth and the things that, that happened, that to celebrate moments in our history where we see racism and, and things defeated in our lifetime. Lord, the Lord calls us to be full of justice, and that's my call for you, to not belittle it simply because maybe philosophies that you've held onto. And this is not my own idea. In Isaiah chapter 58, when his people, when God's people are lacking in this area, when they're only gathering instead of carrying out justice, he calls to them and he says, is this not the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him and to not ignore your own flesh and blood? Highlands, we should be a place that is seeing the oppressed set free, breaking chains of brokenness, helping those in our midst. We shouldn't be hesitant. We should be the first responders. And we need to uphold the justice that we see in the here and now. Now, on the other side, to speak to this area over here, those that would maybe uphold and even see social justice as the heart of everything that they do. Um, I understand and I, I really appreciate that heart. A lot of times what can happen on this side is that that issue of social justice and, and, and things that you're passionate about end up becoming so closely ingrained to your heart that we can begin to get angry at God or at other people when we feel like there is inaction and injust towards injustice that's happening in our world. We believe that like we need to all pick up, we need to get together, we need to be the ones that are being social forces in our world, and therefore we need to see our world be essentially a heaven here on earth. And when we don't see kind of that utopia or that heaven realized, we begin to doubt the Lord or get mad at other people. Maybe we even begin to write off other people in our society, cancel, as we would say, in our world, because they're not following along in the way that we want them to follow along. Here's my plea for you, is to understand that we're never going to have heaven here on earth. There is a day where we're going to see all of those evil things and wretched things that happen in our society and culture go away forever. But we are not the ones that carry it out. The Lord is. 
In Romans 12, 19, uh, Paul, as he's talking about Christian ethics and how to be someone that carries out justice in our world, he reminds us, he says, friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, or essentially the coming of the Son of Man, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. My question for you, is that when you don't see justice happening in the way you expected, do you really believe that God will repay? Or do you believe that you need to be the one that takes up and picks up the responsibility and everyone else just needs to follow along and follow in line? Maybe grace isn't shown to those that are struggling. The Lord calls us to justice and we need to unify under that call. That no matter where you come from, no matter what part you would find yourself in, no matter how you experience that, that we need to be a church that is actively helping our community so that when people look at Highlands Community Church, they see a place that is full of peace, that is full of love, that is full of unity, that is full of care, that cares for truth and upholds grace at the exact same time. God calls us, when we understand the end, when we understand that there is one day we're gonna see perfection and justice ratified, the Lord calls us to be that way today. If I understand that God is a just judge who will fairly deal with evil in the end, that changes how I view and enact justice today. The second thing that we see, the way that we are changed, the way that our perspective shifts, if we have the end in mind, is that if I understand that God welcomes me into his presence for all of eternity, not based upon who I am, then that changes the way I approach him today. We have been given grace. We have been given grace. Not only does the end change the way that we view justice, but it changes how we view grace. This, this woman in this story, it's interesting to see the interaction between the judge and this widow. The judge interacts with this woman solely based upon her status, solely based upon her identity. Now, culturally, once again, at this time, everyone would have understood what being a widow entailed. Uh, essentially, this woman um, was kind of on this social status that wasn't very high up on a priority list for anyone, including a judge. In the Old Testament, people are called to care for widows and orphans because those were of some of the lowest on the status hierarchy, if you will, in their society and culture. So God called them to care for them. A woman like this would not inherit her, the deceased husband's possessions like they would today. If she returned to her own personal family, the money exchanged at the wedding would actually be given back. And if she remained in the husband's family, she would become like a servant. So that's why she's coming to this judge in such desperation. There's been a status placed upon her that she knows, hey, I, I need justice and I need it now. And that's why she continually keeps coming back over and over and over again, because he just doesn't really care. He's looking at her for the, the cultural uh, viewpoint that has been placed upon her. And a lot of us can kind of feel this way many different times in many different ways. There are either internal or external statuses placed upon us for the things that we do or don't do in our culture and even within us ourselves. There are things uh, that maybe we're named or maybe that uh, we are labeled as just because of who we are. 
Um, I, this is a really, really dumb illustration, but um, I, when I was in seventh grade, um, was homeschooled. And uh, my mom wanted to make sure that I was thoroughly socially you know, brought into the social world, if you will, uh, and uh, that I actually had the skills and abilities to be able to talk with people, hang out with people, all that kind of stuff, very classic things. I'm not sure if it worked, but we're still working that out. Uh, but uh, I, I remember going to uh, my first practice with a new team. I'd been with this team since third grade, um, and uh, all of a sudden, because of the way the school districts changed, I had to go to this new team. And so I remember uh, thinking as a seventh grade middle school student that's homeschooled and doesn't have a lot of friends, how can I just put my best foot forward, right? Like, how can I uh, just go in and they love me forever? Like, they, they think I'm the funniest guy, the coolest guy. Uh, I, I can just, you know, be one of the dudes. And so I remember uh, being so nervous before the practice, thinking about, okay, what do, I, what do I wear? How do I look? How do I talk? All that kind of stuff. So I remember pulling up, and I'm, I'm sweating. I'm getting ready. I see the group of other guys, other seventh grade guys hanging out there. And, and I remember getting out of the car and going and talking with them. And we're just kind of chatting and stuff. And they look down at my shirt. And on my shirt, the shirt that I had chosen to pick out, uh, was this shirt that had like an American flag. Uh, and for whatever reason, I don't know to this day, but had bulldogs, like cartoon bulldogs on it, okay? It's just your classic, you walk into Kohl's, you, your mom finds you something, throws it on you, right? And so I remember, I'm thinking in this moment, everything's good, we're getting along. And then they look at my shirt and inwardly I go, I made a mistake. And they go, bulldogs, why bulldogs? And I start talking to them about it and they're like, for the rest of this time, your nickname is now Bulldog. <laughs> and as a seventh grader, you just felt like you made the worst mistake in the entire world. What kind of nickname is Bulldog? And no one's allowed to call me Bulldog here because I would be the worst. But I, it was just for the rest of the year, I'm labeled that name. Because I chose to wear some dumb shirt that I wasn't thinking about and now that's been placed upon me for all time. And like I said, this happens to us all the time. Either externally or internally, we can begin to have a label upon us simply because of the things we do, the way we look, the way we interact with people. The most damaging one, the most damaging label or status position that we place is actually from ourselves sometimes. It's the inward voice that places a certain status or name or label upon us because of the sin that we're struggling with. A lot of times we may have addictions. There may be a behavior that we're really struggling with, anxiety, a fear, things that we just can't shake, things that if people knew them about us, they wouldn't accept us in the way that we want them to. And inwardly, we have this voice that constantly is just telling us, this is who you are, this is who you are. And as we label ourselves that way, it changes the way that we approach the Lord. We could never approach the Lord because of this sin issue or this thing that we did in the past because he would never accept us. I'm not worthy enough because I can't get rid of this thing. If he only knew the things that I did and have done and am doing, he would never let me approach him. We constantly label ourselves in that way and it changes the way that we approach him. And honestly, if God is a just judge, and he is, 
if he is a judge that sits on high, that one day will condemn us for everything that we have done, we should be labeled by those things. But this all changes when the judge is your dad, when the judge is your father, when he had sent his son to live the life that you can't live, died the death that you deserve, and raised to life in a way that you can't so that his identity could be placed upon you. Those labels, that status, the things that you struggle with, they're gone. It's like the farthest, from the east to the west, the psalm says, we are now known, not by what we've done, not by the internal things that have happened to us, not by things that people have done to us, but we are now known as children and heirs with Christ. So we can now, we can now approach the judgment seat of the Lord with confidence, because he has given us grace. He has changed our status. He has welcomed us in, no matter what you've done. You are now known by the Father. If we truly understand that God welcomes us into his presence for all eternity, not based upon our works, and that changes the way that we approach him today. So the question is, what do we do with this? If we understand that God's calling us to see justice differently and he's calling us to see ourselves differently through grace, what does that mean for us in the here and now? What's the action step? Well, the action step goes back to verse one, prayer. If we now need a Lord, if we now need a savior that is able to carry out justice in our world and we need grace and we have the ability to be able to enter into his presence, that means that we can now talk with him. We can now speak with the creator of the universe. We can now interact with the Lord on high and ask him to do things in our life that we could never ask anyone else or ourselves to ever do. And so we pray we pray, and, and that prayer is a means to remind us of the end. That one day, uh, we're gonna be able to be in perfect communion with God. One day, he's gonna reconcile all things to himself. One, that we need him to be able to see things carried out in our life. And so my plea for you this week is to make prayer a priority. Make prayer a priority. A lot of times, going back to the beginning, we can get so caught up in the things of this earth that we can begin to forget to pray. We forget that we need help. We forget that we, we need the Lord to be able to enter into our situation. And we get lost in it and we just bypass it. It seems like something that's like not that big of a deal. It's just kind of us setting aside time just to talk to the Lord. But prayer is actually allowing God, speaking to God, asking God to do things in our life that we can't do. This woman continually goes to the unjust judge and, and asks for help. And Jesus essentially says, if she's willing to go to the unjust judge and do that, how much more do you have the ability to be able to go to a just judge who is going to enter into your situation and help you? Martin Luther, while talking about this, uh, had a really great statement as he was commentating on this text. He says that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. Yeah, it's the ability to be able to grab onto God's power 
to be able to see him do things in our life, to trust his timing when we don't see those things happen in the timing that we want it to. It's not that we're going to him and trying to bother him as much as possible so that the unjust judge is able to do things for us. No, it's communing with our father so that he may be able to do a work in our life that we can't see. This woman, she brings forward um, what she calls and what they call an adversary. And she presents him or this thing to the unjust judge. We don't know what that adversary is. But I can promise you in this room, there are adversaries that are consistently filling your life right now. There are unexpected things that have popped up in your life. Diagnosis, loss. There are sins that you've been struggling with that you don't know how to get over. There is a person that's broken your heart or difficulty that you've been facing. There's an adversary that's consistently pulling you away, telling you different things, things that you are struggling with. And the Lord is asking, is begging, is pleading for you to bring that adversary towards him. Place it at his feet and to make prayer a priority because he is going to show you how justice and grace can be made real in your life. And he has the power to be able to do things that we can't do. So my, my plea for you this week is just make prayer a priority. Five minutes each day. Set a timer on your phone just right when you first wake up. It seems simple, but a lot of times, once again, we get caught in the midst of life and we can begin to kind of put prayer to the wayside. Make it the primary thing of your life. As we do so, I think that we're going to get a picture of the end as we tie ourselves, not to the things of this world, but to the Lord himself. As we wrap up, Van's gonna begin to, to make their, their way up to the front. Um, but I wanna leave you with one last thought, just a really good quote. Um, that I think is super important. Uh, there's a phrase, and I used to hear it all the time uh, in Ohio. I'm from Ohio, so uh, I used to hear this phrase all the time in Ohio. So I don't know if it's popular out here, uh, but it, it may, may be something that you have heard before. Um, there are times where we may label someone in the church uh, and say something like this about them. We say that they are so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. You may have heard this statement before. That someone is so heavenly minded that they are so uh, of no earthly good. And the idea behind it is essentially that someone is so just theologically minded that they're so caught up in just theology and all these different things about the Lord that they're not doing anything in their world today. And so I, I get that premise. I understand what's being said there. I, I, I won't belittle that. I think there's an importance there. We need to be carrying out what God calls us to do. But there's also a flip side to this that at times we can be so earthly-minded that we're not even thinking about heaven at all, that we're not even focusing upon the things that are, that are going on in the, the heavenly realms, that, that we are not even ever contemplating who God is and things that he's accomplished, and, and we're not even thinking about the end because we are thinking so much about what's happening here on earth. And C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says this that's just so good about this statement. He says, a continual, continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It doesn't mean that we leave the present world as it is. 
If you read history, you will find that Christians who did, uh, who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective at this. And then he says this, which I just think is so good and has been haunting me. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. We need to have our minds set on what's to come, on who God is and what he wants to accomplish. To think like Jesus we need to live with the end in mind. Let me pray for us. God, we come before you right now laying up prayer to you and, and just asking you to do a work in our life that, that we can't even imagine or what we won't even expect. There are people in this room who are coming in with very real uh, adversaries in their life, problems, issues, pain, people that have been just such a burden has been painful, has been difficult, God. And I, I pray that you give us something that only you can give, and that is your perfect peace. May we see justice carried out. May we see your work in our life. May we understand grace in ways that we've never understood it before. May you be near to us. May we know you as the Father the caretaker of our soul. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me as we end this morning in worship?